Hi there, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This sermon by Pastor Eric Ludi is entitled, The Faith of a Five-Year-Old. As we meditate on this Christmas season, do we find that we are so crowded with quote-unquote guests that there is no room in the inn for the King of Kings? Oh, that this season will be marked by a complete removal of all competing tenets, and may that old carol be true of us this Christmas, which says, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com and enjoy the message. Well, this is a very, very unique message. Uh, I don't know if I've ever said that to you before, uh, because I, I do whip out unique messages every now and then. But this one is. There is I've never done anything even close to it. So it sounds sort of fun, doesn't it? Uh, and it's, and let me give, yeah, oh, you have it. You've already seen it up there. The faith of a five-year-old. I mentioned this concept in the book Wrestling Prayer. I was talking about how the world is turned upside down when men and women of God once again gain the faith of a five-year-old. And so that's been a statement in, you know, in books past. And now I have a message called The Faith of a Five-Year-Old. And this is going to be a very intimate message for me. Let me just prep you with that. And you see, the, the Word of God is the basis of Christianity. It's the basis of our belief, not our experience, not our philosophies, not just what our parents taught us, not just what our culture has taught us. It's what the Word of God says. Now, sometimes we got dealt a good hand and our parents told us what was in the Word of God. That's a good combination. But there's some of us that have some funny foundation stones that we've built our life upon, and when the winds and the rains come crashing against our house, what happens? Our house can't stand. I can't tell you how many of us have stared at the walls of our house collapsed, and yet on the top of our house is always read, Christian house. What's wrong with my stinking house here? It doesn't stand. Well, oftentimes it's because what we build it upon was not truth. And so in the process of growing as a Christian, what we oftentimes need to do is bring in a bulldozer, and we need to plow away so much of what we've always thought and believed and get back to what it says in the Word of God. You know what it says? Some things in the Word of God that are somewhat difficult to believe as a rational, mature human being. Do you remember how Eve was formed? Supposedly... Adam fell asleep. God put Adam into a sleep. And when Adam was asleep, God, not exactly sure how he did this, but he surgically removed a rib from Adam's side. And out of this rib, I don't know if you've ever seen a rib. Any of you ever seen a rib? Okay, it's, uh, it, you know, it's, well, it, when it's still in us, it's white, okay? But then if it is in, in an archaeological dig, if you ever dig up a rib, which I dug up a rib once uh, in an archaeological dig, it's black, okay? Just as a little bit of trivial information for you because bones become carbon replaced over time and they end up being black. So don't you always have this picture that if you're an archaeologist, you're going to dig up something white? Like, oh, and it's this white skeleton. Actually, it's black, as strange as that is. Okay, that's just a little side note. But God has this white rib, because we're assuming it was freshly out of Adam. This white rib, and somehow out of a rib, <laughs> combs her hair, makes her look all nice, puts a little lipstick on, and sets her before Adam, who he then quickly wakes up. 
Okay, now, follow me. How in the world does that happen? Have you ever seen something created out of a rib? The fact that you haven't seen something created out of a rib, does that mean that it is impossible that God created Eve out of a rib? You know, there are people that don't believe that God created Eve out of a rib. They think it's just a, a story. I would like to tell you that if God says something is true and factual, I don't care if I've ever seen it with my own eyes. It's God. And if God wants to take a rib and make a woman, that's his business. And there are all sorts of other things, by the way, in the book of Genesis that fall into that category. Giants roaming the land. There's one giant that was so big that it says that his bedstead, his bed frame that he slept on was 18 feet in length. Okay, that's, that's taller than that beam. Have you ever seen a guy that big? I mean, Mikey Hahn is pretty tall. Johnny Weshy, you know, is no slouch. But Johnny, what are you, 6'8"? Six, 6'7"? Six, that's nothing. Okay, you can almost multiply three Johnnies and you start to get the king of Bashan, Og. Okay, have you seen this before? Do you believe in giants? Well, you know, I've never seen a giant. If the Bible says it, it's good for me. I don't know how they really got here. It's a little confusing, all this stuff that it describes. I mean, it gives you indication of how they got here. But then there was a flood. I don't know how they re-got here. So there's things I don't fully understand, but I do know that God says it. And if God says it, that's good enough for me. I treat the Word of God, the Bible, as if it is, in fact, the Word of God. And God cannot lie. You know, that's a fact about God. He cannot lie. And so here's what happens to us. We grow up. You see, when we're little kids, we can believe things. And we can believe them without guile. We can believe them without cloud or, you know, that fishy eye that goes, hmm. But as we grow up, we start to get the fishy eye. And we start to say, you know what? I've never seen these things happen. You know, God promises things to us in Scripture that are huge. They are big. And yet some of us have never seen them in our life. So if we look at our experience and we test the Word of God against our experience, oftentimes the Word of God looks weak. But that isn't how we're supposed to test the Word of God. Okay, now I've given this illustration before, but I think it's about time I bring it out of my hip pocket again. Okay? And that's the three characters that are walking the ridgepole. Some of you are going, oh, I've heard this story 20 times. Uh-huh. And for some reason, everyone forgets it. Because we go right back to consulting our experience. So that's why Eric has to whip it out. I just have it sitting there ready at any given moment to go thunk. Okay, three characters walking the ridgepole. Now this ridgepole is really steep, okay? It's like the, the top of a barn, but it's like a really steep roof. And you need to walk along the very top without falling off. Okay, that's the challenge. It's known as the triumphant life. What it says in Scripture of how we are supposed to live is absolutely impossible. If anyone's just honest about it, what we are called to do, I mean, to love as Christ loves, to be holy as Christ is holy, to be perfect as our God is perfect, okay, how many of us are measuring up? It's impossible. And so here are these three characters. The first one pops out of the chute, and he's like, uh, I'll, I'll do it. And his name is Fact. And Fact actually walks the ridgepole without even wobbling. He's Fact. He's Truth. There's no wobble, no stagger needed. 
He's fact. Now, in comes faith. Faith is the next character. You know that as long as faith stays trained, having his eyes trained on fact, he has balance? As long as he keeps his eyes on fact, on truth, he can walk the impossible life. But here's the problem with poor faith. Faith has to deal with this pesky third character who has these hands that are always reaching out and pulling on his shirt. His name is Experience. He's always clawing, saying, hey, look at me. And experience has no balance, as you can testify in your own life. What your experience has told you and taught you in your life isn't that impressive. It totally diminishes God. God has no power. God has no ability. And so this is always reaching out. Experience is always clawing at faith. And here's the secret. If faith keeps its eyes trained on fact, it walks the ridgepole. But if faith turns around and consults experience, experience topples off the roof and faith follows suit. And faith topples as well. If you want experience to line up with fact, then you keep faith locked on fact. And if faith follows fact, experience eventually gains its balance and begins to walk the ridgepole. And that's what Christianity is. Christianity is not just fact walking the ridgepole. You can walk it blindfolded. And it's not just faith believing in this impossible life. It's your experience matching up. And what we oftentimes need to do is become as little children. And once again, just approach the word of God and say, God, you said it. I know my experience doesn't testify to that, but if you said it, I'm going to believe it. And it's that simple. And so that's what this message is about. To give this message, I wanted a special guest star who doesn't know I'm going to ask him to come up here. Hudson. This is not prepared in any way. So as a result, I am very vulnerable up here. Yes, this is very good. Okay, do you want to sit down over here, buddy? Isn't this fun? Can you hold the microphone? Try and hold it about right here. Yeah, that'll work. All right, say hi to everyone. Hi. Uh, How old are you, Hudson? Almost six. Okay, so how old are you? Five. See, that helps with my message. You know, if you name something the faith of a five-year-old, you need a five-year-old, right? Uh, Hudson, when do you turn six? In ten days. In ten days. You're right. Good job, buddy. It's December 29th uh, that uh, Hudson turns uh, six, and we're very excited about that. You have some crumbs on you. Uh, Okay, now, I came home the other day from work. It was, it was a teaching day at Ellerslie. And I came back home, and Hudson was very excited to show me something. And he had decorated uh, the entire back door, which goes into our classroom. Do you remember that? What had you done all day? What did you decorate that, that door with? Bible story pictures. Bible story pictures. Every story that he could think of. He drew a picture of it, and he had taped it to the back of this door. So he wanted to show me the door. And he took, we had pictures all over the room, though, too. There were other uh, pictures uh, around the room, weren't there? But that door was a very special door. And I pointed at every picture, and he told me what it was. 
And it was one of the most precious things I think I'd ever seen in my life. Because here was a little boy who spent his day uh, thinking about the stories that uh, he loved the most. And so this is somewhat of an art show. Because I scanned those pictures. And I would like Hudson to walk us through. So you get to see the back of the door. Uh, and you get to take a peek into something that uh, had an impact on me. And in the process, uh, we're going to talk about the faith of a five-year-old. All right? Hudson, you ready to see your pictures? Is that a yes? Okay. It's back here. Look up at the screen. Oh. What's this picture? Can you tell everyone? Um, Adam and Eve walking away from the tree. So Adam and Eve are in the garden of Eden, and there's a tree there. Now, is this a good tree or a bad tree? Bad tree. It's a bad tree. Well, technically, it's just the tree they weren't supposed to touch. So whether or not we call it good or bad, uh, it was the, the tree that they weren't supposed to eat from. And you see two of them there, and they're sort of wandering around the tree. I don't know if they're trying to avoid the tree or not. But what we see happen in this next picture... Oh. And we have all sorts of different construction paper, by the way, too. So there you see all sorts of different colors. This is a very Christmassy message, by the way. What do we have here, B? Eve and the snake giving the fruit. Uh-huh. So that's the snake. Do you see the snake coming down from the tree? It's really creepy, isn't it? And what does the snake have that it's holding out to Eve? Food. Food. Uh yeah, we don't know if it was an apple. We always envision it as an apple. Technically, it just says the fruit. Uh, and there's Eve. Now, I think most of us know the story, but something happened here. You see, God created this world, and he created men for relationship with himself. And there was this one tree in the garden. They had all the rest of the garden that they could eat of, but there was this one tree that they were told to stay away from. God had given his children truth, fact. And if they would stay in alignment with fact, they could walk the ridgepole. But there was bait to get off course and off kilter. And it was this crazy fruit and this crazy serpent, as as Hudson drew it, is offering the fruit. I've never thought about it that way. But uh, the serpent, this little brown line there, is offering and holding out a fruit before us. You know, doesn't that sound familiar of what we deal with in our life? There's things we know we're supposed to do, and yet there's this brown line that is holding out a fruit for us. It's holding it out before us, saying, you know, I know that God made all these great statements, and yes, you know, he's, he's a nice guy. But look at what you're missing. Look at how much more luscious life could be if you just ate of this fruit. Now, this is where it all started, by the way. This is where everything went wrong. You know, we have a lot of pain and suffering in this world. You know, we have 15 of you that just came here from Haiti. That brown stick, (laughs) that serpent, he's pretty active in Haiti, isn't he? He wants to hurt people. In our home, we call him the big meanie. And he's up to no good. You know what? What happened here? Did, did Eve eat the, the fruit? Mm-hmm. She ate the fruit. Now, when Eve ate that fruit, you know that she was rebelling against God? Let's keep going, buddy. What is that? Noah 
Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark. That is a boat if I've ever seen one. And let's see, what is that Noah that, that has some kind of animal there? The, you know, the guy that's blue? Is that an animal that he's bringing into the ark? Uh-huh. Now, is there two of that animal? Because if we're going to be correct, there would have to be two of that animal. What animal is that, by the way? Is that a horse? Is that a cow? Oh, it is a lion. I can see the mane. That's great. And so we're guessing that there were two lions, right? You think there was a male and a female lion? We just see one in the picture, right? You know, that was the only one you drew. Well, now Eve ate of the that fruit, right? And she disobeyed God. And who else ate of the fruit? Adam. Adam. And then everything sort of went wrong, didn't it? And now this thing called sin was in the earth. And it was affecting people so that they were behaving wrongly. They weren't behaving the way God intended them to behave. Something was out of whack. And so God decides that he's going to destroy all the people on this earth. Isn't that sort of a terrible thing? But what did God do? Did he destroy everyone? No. Well, what's happening here? Did God ask Noah to build that ark? Could anyone get in the ark? No. No? Just Noah? And the animals. And, and the animals? And his family. And his family? Well, did you know that that ark is sort of like Jesus? That in the midst of a time when sin is going to be judged, that there is an ark that was built and the door was left open? Did you know that more than just Noah could have entered in? But when the door closed and the rain started coming, did you know that everyone started banging on the ark and wanted in? I would like us to just sort of ponder the fact that Jesus is an ark and he has a door that's wide open right now. And those floodwaters are going to be coming. But that door is open. What's this? Joseph in the coat of many colors. Joseph in the coat of many colors. So Joseph has 11 brothers, right? And did his brothers like him? Did they give him big hugs and kisses? No. No? Well, Joseph had special favor upon him. Uh, uh, and he had these dreams. I don't know if you guys remember those dreams. Do you remember his dreams? Yeah, where it's what, stalks of wheat that bowed down to him, and he was the premier stalk of wheat. And then the stars, what is it, the moon and the stars, I forgot how it bowed down to him and paid him homage. And so he was given this coat by his dad too. And so there was a tremendous jealousy. Now I want you to realize that this is very similar to Jesus Christ too. You know that Jesus Christ was born into the family line, the same family line of Joseph. Did you know that? He was Jacob, who is Joseph's father, is known as Israel. And all of God's people were known as Israelites. They were all Israel. And just like Joseph, Jesus had special favor upon him. And just like Joseph, he knew that all the earth would bow down before him. But there was a tremendous jealousy, a tremendous striving amongst those brothers. And do you know what they did? They sold Joseph into slavery. But what ended up happening? After all of Joseph's sufferings, he ended up becoming the rescuer of all his people, didn't he? Doesn't that sound a lot like Jesus? 
Oh, one of my favorite pictures that you've ever drawn. What is that? David and the lion. There's a lion. You can tell by that mane. Isn't that an incredible mane? And then look what's in the lion's mouth. What's in that lion's mouth? What does that be? A sheep. That's a sheep in the lion's mouth. And who's running after him? David. Look at that movement in the stick figure. He is moving fast. See, that lion took something that belonged to David, didn't it? David was a shepherd, and David's job was to take care of those sheep. You know that you're a sheep? You know whose sheep you are and who you belong to? God. That's right. And what happens if the lion goes after you? Do you think God's too happy about that? Do you think he's just going to stand by and say, you know, twiddle his thumbs and say, oh, just one lost. I don't care if I lose one sheep. Is that Jesus or what? He's running after that lion. You know what Jesus did? He ran after the lion and he broke its jaw and removed the sheep from its teeth. That's us. He rescued us, didn't he? I like David. You have a couple pictures of David, don't you? Oh, oh, what's this one? David and Goliath. David and Goliath. Okay, so I see a rock that's flying through the air. What's that little circular thing there in between David and, and Goliath? What is that? Goliath dropped a rope and had his sword on the ground and okay. picked it up. Okay, so that's something that Goliath is dropping. Now, look how big Goliath is. Some commentators would say that he was over 12 feet tall. That's about right. That's huge. Now, how could a little shepherd boy take on a giant like that? What's his secret? God. Well, that's a pretty basic secret, isn't it? Well, all of Israel had God. Why does David seem to be able to be the only one that has the confidence to fight the giant? David knew that he was assigned those sheep. And when a lion came along and tried to take one of those sheep, you know what David did? He went after the lion. You know when a bear came along and tried to take those sheep, you know what David did? He went after the bear. And you know the reason he had confidence to go against Goliath? is because he defeated the lion and the bear. So you're right. That's exactly what it was. He gained his strength by practicing his confidence in God. He had the faith of a five-year-old. And he was willing to say, if my God has called me to protect these sheep, he's going to enable me to protect these sheep. You know what he was also anointed to do? To be the king of Israel. And when he strolled into the valley of Elah that day and saw all of the Israelites trembling with fear before this 12-foot beast, he said, God has appointed me king here. And God will give you into our hands. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would blaspheme the armies of the living God? I love that picture, B. I want you to keep drawing pictures like that. Whoa. What is this, B? You will bow it, bowing down to the idol in Chadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, not. So we have an idol there. It sort of looks like Goliath, you know, but it's an idol, and it's big. So it's like a big, meanie thing. And then we have some people that are bowing down. Uh, and, but look at those three. You know that if they don't bow down, they'll be? What's going to happen to them? They're going to get thrown into the fiery furnace. 
whoa, well, let's think about this. You could either bow down and say to something that isn't God, you are my God, which isn't the best idea, right? We, most of us as Christians know that. God is our God, and we only bow down to him. However, if you don't bow down, you're going to be thrown in to a furnace that is full of fire. Not too comfortable there. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do in that situation, buddy? I'm going to bow down to God. You're only going to bow down to God? That's the number one thing I want in your life, is that you make Jesus Christ everything to you, and that you will not bow down to anything but him, even if it means a fiery furnace. Okay? What's this be? Um... Shadrach, Meshach, and Ben go in the fiery furnace. Oh, they're in the fiery furnace. So they got thrown into the fiery furnace, but I see something up there in the left-hand corner. What is that? An angel. Oh. You know that many would say that that angel of God that was in the furnace with them was Jesus. Isn't that neat? So if you choose to not bow down to any false god on this earth and you choose only to bow down to Jesus and they throw you in the fire, who's going to be there with you? God. That's right. Isn't that an incredible thing to always know? What's this? Jonah and the whale. Jonah and the whale. What's, what's the similarity between Jonah and Jesus? Jonah got spit out of the whale in three days, and Jesus rose again in three days. You know what? You know how to pick certain stories that show a lot about Jesus Christ, don't you? I would almost guess that you like Jesus Christ. Is that true? Yeah? You know that Daddy delights in one thing and one only in your life, and that is you going after Jesus. I think we have a special occasion here. So might need a few songs sung about it. What is this? Jesus lying in the manger. Oh, look at that. I think that's a whole bunch of hay. I'm not positive. And then we have some different characters surrounding it. But I see a little baby in there. You see, when Eve ate of that fruit and Adam followed... Since Adam didn't stand up and do what the man was supposed to do, guess what? God needed to send another man. Another man who would be willing to take the blow and to take the death so that his bride could be set free. And he came as a baby. Isn't that amazing? That Jesus would be born as a baby? It doesn't seem very strong. When you think of Abby Rose, could you imagine her taking on the big meanie? She's pretty small, isn't she? God came small and still beat the big meanie. Isn't that amazing? That's because God is really strong and big. What is this? It's, it's um, uh, actually, it's, uh, it's supposed to be, it's not. supposed to be sideways? Yeah. Oh, it's the wrong orientation to the picture. Sorry about that. Hudson's very sensitive to the way a picture's laid out. This picture is supposed to be sideways. Because of why? Because in how, how a cross looks, is the hands are sideways. 
That's right. So that's the, that's the hand of Jesus. I see some marks on it. Is that because it was covered with blood and it was pierced? Yeah. When Jesus died for us, didn't he? To set us free. Because we were under the control of the big meaning and the power of sin. And no matter how hard we tried to get out, we couldn't. We were stuck. So what Jesus Christ did here is so huge and important. What's that? Jesus on the cross. That's Jesus on the cross. You can see the cross behind him if you look very closely. It's blue construction paper, so it's not easy to see. But you have a cross, and you have Jesus on the cross, and you see his crown of thorns up there. The greatest moment in history. It's, it's arguable. The greatest moment in history is it when Jesus died or when Jesus Christ rose again or when Jesus Christ ascended because you know when he ascended what that means? That he is sending forth himself into our lives to enable us to live the life that we could never live ourselves. So if we we're going to take a vote, which one wins? That's a hard one. How about we just wrap it all together? You know what? That is the Christmas story. If we are going to have a Christmas story, it's more than God coming to this earth. It's God coming to this earth and accomplishing something that only God could accomplish. And then not just accomplishing it and saying it is finished, but then rising again and then taking his position at the position of authority at the right hand of God Almighty and sending forth everything that is needed to live this life, everything that we would need for life and godliness. Thank you, Jesus, for becoming a baby. Thank you, Jesus, that those hands and those feet were pierced. Thank you, Jesus, for dying and suffering for us. I think most of us can guess what this is, Hudson. It's a very significant picture. The three crosses, right? Now, there's, don't, don't say anything about what's at the top of the page, okay? I'm going to get to that later. Uh, because it's actually it's going to play into my message. Uh, and I'll come back to this picture. But first of all, Hudson, I want to say thank you. You've done a great job up here. Okay? And I'm going to, you can go back to your seat now, and Daddy will finish up his message. But I just want to say thank you for coming up and introducing your art to us. Those are pictures that warm a dad's heart. And... To see my son meditating upon these things, he's drawing crosses all over the place uh, with chalk. So I have some spots in our house that are not supposed to be covered with chalk uh, that are. But what do you say? It's a cross, you know? How how can I argue? Uh, And to see my son process through the grandeur. I mean, what what he wrote on the back of this door was the gospel throughout history. He doesn't maybe fully understand that, but I looked at it, and it was like God was speaking to me. How God speaks through little five-year-olds to adults that spend all the time focused on the Word of God. And then I look at these little pictures, and I see something that oftentimes I overlook when I read the story. That, Eric, everyone else is bowing down but those three, and you know the consequence, don't you? It means the fiery furnace. Do you remember this? And it means not just the fiery furnace for you, but for everyone around you. To realize the consequences this brings to your home if you follow after this little Christ child. This one that was born in a stable. You give your life to him, and it will cost you everything. But that's the secret to gaining everything, is to give your life up 
for him. So, becoming as a little child. In Matthew 18, it says, At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him. A strange thing. Because the disciples were arguing amongst themselves of who was the greatest. It's like Peter's a pretty big guy, and he's one of the first called, and so, you know, it makes sense. Jesus, Peter's oftentimes included when Jesus breaks up just the first three, Peter, James, and John. There's Peter. He's always named first. He has a special name, Petros. Jesus gives him a special name. He has to be pretty important. I can just see the argument going back and forth. John and James's mom comes to Jesus and actually makes the appeal that they could sit on both sides of him in his kingdom. Oh, they stirred up the hornet's nest. They want to know who is the most important, who's the, who's the greatest in the kingdom. So Jesus shakes things up a bit, calls a little child unto him and sets him in the midst of them and said, Verily, I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. There is something about childlikeness that is important to entering the kingdom of heaven. When we come in with all of our knowledge, all our wits, and all our wisdom, and all our pride, we are blocked. The secret to the kingdom of heaven is becoming lowly. It's not thinking highly of ourselves. Little children struggle. I mean, they don't have that, uh, that pompous arrogance. They're just children. Now, it doesn't mean they can't be trained in it, but I'm telling you, just an innocent child is exactly what God needs to work with. They're humble. If God says to a little child, this is just the way it is, they go, okay. However, when God comes to us and he says, you know, I have something to tell you, we're like, uh, let me weigh this. Let me filter this through my experience, through my understanding. No, I don't. We read scriptures, and we come in from above the scripture. We look down at it, and we go, well, I don't know. You know what a child does? They just look up at it and says, it's God's word. It's that simple. He wins. He's right. We take the approach we need to come under the truth as opposed to over it and try and define it and pick it apart and pick the pieces out that we want and you know, get rid of the ones we don't. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. You don't mess with these little ones. God says this is the bulwark, this is the foundation of my kingdom. You must become as one of these. And then when you become as one of these, anyone who messes with one of these humble little children, it is better for them that a millstone were tied around their neck because we're talking about a father here, the father in heaven, and he cares for his little children. Brethren, how not, be not children in understanding, howbeit in malice be ye children, but in understanding be men. This is going to seem a little contradictory. And so you'd say, why in the world are you bringing this up? Faith of a five-year-old, just focus on the little kid side of it. You know, God says that to enter into his kingdom, we must become as little children. We must become lowly in our mindsets. We must come under the word of scripture. We must lose the guile, that manipulative element of trying to act a certain way, trying to be a certain way. Get rid of the charade. Allow yourself to just be. 
crumpled before God and saying, he's my all in all. I have nothing in and of myself. A little child does not think highly of themselves. It's all about God. God is able to do it. Who can create the heavens and the earth? God. Who can save men from their sin? God. Who can raise dead men to life again? God. They believe it. It's us that have the problems. We need to become as them. However, in the process of maturing in the Christian faith, you know that God doesn't intend us to remain just as children. You know that children also need discipline. Children need to be groomed to know how to look people in the eye and talk correctly in social situations. They have a little foolishness bound up in the heart, and they need it driven out still. God intends us to grow up unto men and women. However, to not lose the faith of a child. So in our understanding... We are to not be children. We are to grow up unto a full stature and knowledge of our God. However, in malice, in deceit, in guile, we are to be his children. We are not to carry the earth's methods for maturity. God's methods. Dekomai. It means to take with the hand, to take hold of, to grant access to a visitor, to not refuse friendship, to not reject. You know when it says, you know, I'll go back. Right in the middle, it says, and whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receives me. That's the word dekomai, which means to take with the hand, to take hold of, to grant access to a visitor, to not refuse friendship, to not reject. It's to accept in, to show hospitality. No, come on in. Come on in. It's to take hold of. Literally, I can picture this little child out on the steps. It's to literally pick them up, grab them, take them into the home. Whosoever receives the little child is receiving God. Now, brace yourself. Remember, Christmas is coming this week. Okay, so I'm, I'm preparing something. It's a whole different angle on it. Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not. For of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. If he doesn't open up the home, the kingdom of God is knocking outside. And you know what happens when that kingdom comes inside? It overtakes everything. It doesn't just hang out in the entryway and look at the, the pictures on the wall and look at itself in the mirror and fix its hair. When the kingdom of God comes in, it overtakes the entire house. It rules the roost. You know what a kingdom is? It's a king's domain, which means a king's ruling area. And so if the kingdom is knocking, king, 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 we're like, well, I, don't know. I don't know. If I let that king in, I become his domain. And a king rules what is his. Whatever that king says, goes. King, king. So what does it say? Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, whoever doesn't invite it in, whoever doesn't take it, pick it up and say, I need you. I'm desperate for what you have. Please come in. Shall not enter therein. He that receiveth me, receiveth him that sent me. You want to do something nice for God the Father this Christmas? Give him a special gift. Well, here's, here's what Jesus says. Take me in. You receive me into your home. You open up your door 
and allow the little child, Jesus, to be born inside of this stable. And the world will turn upside down. You receive God by receiving Jesus. And we could say, because Jesus is God. But Jesus is the king that is knocking. And he is saying, you know that body of yours? I need it. It must become mine. It must become my area in which I rule. I must have you. Emptying the inn. Now, anytime we get around Christmas, usually we don't talk about inns and things like that until we get right around this time of year. Not exactly sure why we do this. Any more than we should not talk about the cross until we get to Resurrection Sunday. We should be talking about the fact that our God has literally come into this earth, made himself vulnerable, and became our strong man, gave up his life. The whole thing is part of the story. It's the story of God's redemption. It's not just a little child in a stable. Emptying the inn. Now, as the story goes, I might have it here, so just a second. Oh, this is an important word. Cataluma. It's the word... Actually, I think I mispronounced it, but I, I do that all the time anyway, so we'll just keep moving. Uh, this is the word for guest chamber, in hotel. This is the word in the Greek for where Mary and Joseph attempted, kink, kink, to enter, and they were received not. Isn't that interesting? Now, who in their right minds, when Jesus comes knocking, in his most desperate hour, and is needing access, and is needing a place to lay his head, who in the world is going to turn them away? Well, do you remember the title of this little section? Emptying the Inn. Let me give you a word to the wise here. Say you have a business, and you run an inn. It's a guest house, you know, and people come in, and it's full one night. You know, it's a popular time of year. There's a census being taken place in town, so everyone's coming from, you know, far and wide uh, to the town, and you are packed. This is a good night for you. Kink, kink. And Jesus comes knocking. A little child. I mean, not yet even born yet, little child. Kink, kink. Here's my advice to you. You kick out every other guest. Every other thing that you are prospering from. Everything that is in the premises. Get it out. The whole thing belongs to the king. The king has come. He's in town. He gets to rule the roost here. Instead, they received him not. You know what this is a picture of? The Jews not receiving Jesus. And you know where he ended up going? To the stable. The Gentiles. He was born in us. That is absolutely profound. Cataluma. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the Cataluma, in the inn. Dear Lord Jesus, may that not be said of us. That Jesus has to be born somewhere else because there was no room here. Are you guys ready to open that door and say, Jesus, come in? You be born here. It's what's called the new birth. It's called being born again. That's the principle of Christianity that we're realizing right here. It's the Christmas story. This is at the very end of Jesus' life, right before he dies. And it's the other time in Scripture that we see this word, Cataluma. Very fascinating. 
And ye shall say, this is Jesus talking, ye shall say unto the goodman of the house. You know who that is? That's the innkeeper. Ye shall say unto the innkeeper, the master saith unto thee, where is the guest chamber? You know what the guest chamber is? The inn. Where is the room for me? Where is the room for, for what? You know what they're going to do there? The Passover. The Passover meal. We need a place. Hey, innkeeper, can I come in with my, my band of cronies here and can we have the Passover meal in this inn? This is us. We're the goodman of the house and the master is coming. And he wants to celebrate the Passover within us. Not just the new birth, but the death of Jesus Christ. The covenant meal that brings us into that depth of intimacy with the King of Kings. You know that that covenant meal was a, was a proposal meal? It's what a bridegroom would propose to his bride. And they would enter into the covenant of marriage. This is no small thing. This is intimacy at the deepest levels. So, remember, the title to this section is Emptying the Inn. So I want to go back in time to a picture in the Old Testament. It's Elisha and Elijah. So this is speaking of Elijah. And so he departed thence and found Elisha. Now, Elisha is going to be his predecessor. He's the one that he is going to literally pass everything that he has. Now, if you don't know Elijah... Elijah has the power of God. He's one of the lone remaining, if not the only remaining prophet in Israel. All the others have been slaughtered by Queen Jezebel. Now, there are other 7,000 that didn't bend their knee to Baal, but as far as prophets, he may be the only one left. And so God is literally asking him to pass along all that is in him to a predecessor known as Elisha. Okay, I want you to prepare yourself. This is the gospel. Jesus came and he was the mighty prophet. And he passed off everything he was to his predecessors. Who is that? That's us! He is born within his predecessors so that we can carry on the work of Jesus Christ on this earth. So what's he doing here? Elisha is plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him. And Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. In the Old Testament, the prophet's strength and power was represented and symbolized through his mantle. And so he throws the mantle onto Elisha. How does Elisha respond? If a prophet comes to you and says, I need you. You're the one God has chosen. He sticks his mantle on you. You know what that means? Everything you have, everything you are, scrap it now. You serve the living God. Okay, so imagine. Kink, kink. Elijah comes to your inn. It's packed with people. And he says, I'm here to transact. God's chosen you. He wants this in. What do you do? Oh, not tonight. This is my busy season. Oh, no. You empty the in. What does Elisha do? So it says, and he left the oxen, speaking of Elisha, and ran after Elijah. And he returned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slew them and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen and gave unto the people and they did eat. Then he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. Well, how did Elisha do his business? He was a farmer. He needed those oxen. He probably spent years of his life gaining the money to be able to buy them. And what does he do when Elisha throws the mantle over his shoulders? Slays them, cuts them into pieces, burns them, feeds the community. 
And then what does it say at the end? And went after Elijah and ministered unto him. Is this the story of your life? Are you willing to leave it all behind? Are you willing to give up everything? Empty the inn for the rightful king to take his place. We also have a scene in Mark 14, which is a very profound one. And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as Jesus, it says he, but I'm going to put in Jesus because that's who it was, sat at meat or eating, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious. And she broke the box and poured it on his head. Now, imagine that you're the innkeeper. Kink, kink. Now you have, well, maybe I should say it this way. Imagine you're not the innkeeper. You're a guest. How about that? You're a guest and you're in one of the rooms and you're just falling asleep that night. It's like, ah, ah. you fix your pillow and like get all snuggled into it. And then you hear this kink, kink, kink down there. And it's just like, yes, the king uh, beckons his quarters. And you hear the, the innkeeper sort of mumbling a little down there. And he's like, well, but I have guests here. And what are you thinking? Yeah, tell them. There's a little indignation when something seems to be so extreme and such a waste. You don't kick out guests. Well, you don't pour out spikenard either. In any normal situation, I would agree. This would seem like a waste. You don't kick out guests. That would be bad form. That's bad social etiquette. You're going to lose your business. Yeah, but you're going to gain Jesus Christ in this situation. And in this situation, this is not extreme and this is not extravagant. And Jesus himself says so. She poured it on his head and there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and have been given to the poor. And they murmured against her, and Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me, for ye have the poor with you always. And whensoever ye will, ye, will, ye may do them good, but ye have me, but me ye have not always. She hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. And Judas Iscariot, listen to the end conclusion of this one. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priest to betray him unto them. When this extreme takes place, when you open up your life, you know that it's going to cause a ripple effect of everything around you. You want to create issues in your life? Empty the in. You want to find love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control beyond measure without limit? You want to discover intimacy with God Almighty? You want to discover what life is supposed to be? Empty the inn. This is what God commands us to do. It might seem a little rude because there's things in your life that are getting snuggled in warm for the night. This habit, you know, you've had it for a long time. It's like it's used to being able to fluff the pillow and go to bed at night. And you're going to come into the room and say, hey, The king is here now. You leave. You can't do this to me. You can't just kick me out. I've been here for years. Uh Uh-huh. And the king has come to take what belongs to him. This is his plot of land. He purchased it with his blood. He owns this inn now. And he says, you have to go. I know it's going to seem ruined to all those nice little friends that you have in your life, your addictions and your behavior patterns, your bad attitudes. They go. They go when the king enters. Becoming the Tawny Hotel. 
Now, I don't know if I have the picture next. Okay. This, this, by the way, Hudson has this very symbol all over our house. And it's called the Tawny Hotel. Now, his, his rendition of spelling Tawny is a bit unusual. And he needed two lines to spell hotel. Which is why it's somewhat difficult, maybe, for all of you to read it. But that's what it says. Tawny Hotel. He got that from the little book uh, called The Tawny Scrawny Lion. Uh, and he wanted to have the Tawny Hotel. And so he markets the Ludi House as the Tawny Hotel. And so he's done elaborate marketing campaigns. He stuck pictures aiming out towards the street that anyone driving along the road can see that we are the Tawny Hotel. And so they could just sort of swing in and find room for the night. Okay? Because we want to have room at the Ludi House. Uh, this could be a little scary if actually word got out that we are the Tawny Hotel. Uh, but uh, Tawny, bearing the colors of the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's the color of a lion, is Tawny. And so Hudson has the Tawny Hotel. I just want you to understand the significance of this, that the very last one that we have is three crosses and the Tawny Hotel. Now, do you remember what Jesus said? He said, go tell the good men of the house that the master has use of your inn, of your hotel. And he is going to make it the Tawny Hotel. See, this is something only a dad can appreciate. But this is emptying the inn to allow it to bear the likeness and the resemblance of the king of all kings. Okay, don't tell me that's not good. I love it. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. I'm not just creating a story here. I'm saying that this is the gospel. That Jesus came a-knocking in Bethlehem. That's the city of new birth. But the place he came to knock at, the quarters of the Jewish culture, he came to the Israelites. And they said, we have no room. We don't accept you. And so he found a stable. A place that is full of manure and smells. If any of you have ever entered a barn, it's not the, the nicest fragrance. Okay, You get used to it after a while. But then you're walking around and you step in things. You're like, oh, this is not pretty. We need to sleep here tonight. It's one thing to take a little visit into your grandparents' stable and say, oh, what a nice place. Okay, could we get back in the house and have some pumpkin pie? This is a little different. She needs to have labor in this stable. This is the location that God chooses. His palace when he came to this earth. The place that did receive him was the place that was empty. That's the place that received him. You may not be that impressive. And you're right. You're not. But you're empty. And that's the place of his choosing. If the inn is full, he'll find another place. And I pray that he finds us. I pray that he finds us and he will take this stable and turn it into the sweetest smelling place on planet earth and make it the palace fit for a king. That's how our God works. What, says Paul, know you not that your body is the inn of the Holy Spirit? Know you not that you are the place that God, that the master is seeking to hold his Passover meal? 
Know you not? Which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? This plot of land known as you was purchased, for you are bought with a price. Therefore, the great conclusion, glorify God in your inn and in your spirit, which are God's. Jesus is knocking, and he wants what belongs to him. You can make your, your money off of all those that are returning to Bethlehem for the census. It'll fade. Your business will eventually go under. You'll find out. You turn away the rightful owner of that inn, and it's not a good decision. But you allow him in to the inn, and he will make your inn what it was meant to be. A place that is hospitable and that receives and that grabs a hold and takes in the living God. Whoso receiveth this little child receives God. There's a little child known as the new birth of Jesus Christ that is wanting to take place in the church of Jesus Christ, in us, in the inn, in the stable. And I say, empty everything to allow such an honor and a privilege to come here to the body of mere men and women. What an incredible reality. That's why I love how Hudson draws pictures because he doesn't just draw the manger scene. The next scenes he draws is a hand of Jesus and then the next one he draws is Jesus on the cross and the next one he draws is three crosses, Tawny Hotel. And he sort of looks back at Daddy and goes, any questions? That's the gospel. And may this wall be shared every time the gospel is shared. You can just see the growl inside his little five-year-old heart. Okay, maybe I'm imagining some of that. But that's good. Let's pray. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message. But do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.